0: Hello, welcome to Unprecedented Women, the podcast sharing incredible stories of women who paid their own way in the world of work. Stories that will inspire you to have the confidence to be visible, take action, and to play big. Because what's the best that can happen? I'm Jess Audsley. We're all pioneers, and we are all unprecedented. So welcome everybody and in today's episode we're going to dive straight into something that I think is incredibly interesting because it affects our everyday lives. It's where we spend a lot of um, time, right? So that's... Cultures at work in our work environment. And what is it that makes them good and more detrimentally to us, what is it that makes them toxic? I have some experience in this myself, and I'm so delighted to welcome and chat to a true expert in her field today. Christina Clark. She is the founder of Work Culturati, which is a boutique consultancy that works towards empowering work cultures and employees. Uh, She does work culture consultancy and leadership coaching and is on a mission for individuals and companies to foster. Or a human centric culture. I think that is so interesting. Christina is a qualified civil, commercial, and workplace mediator. And like myself, she has a background in PR. Christina, welcome. It is so nice to have you here today. I am so excited about the conversation we're going to to have today because I think that whether you're an employee or a leader, it's something that we all need to be aware of and how it's serving and not serving us. But let's start with you. Tell us a bit more about your own journey, where you come from, uh, your own story and how you how you came to do this this mission in life that you do now.
1: Oh, very good question. So how far back am I allowed to go?
0: (laughs) The very beginning.
1: (laughs) The very beginning. Well, um, my background is quite varied. Um, I mean, I've been very lucky that I've grown up in in, in a few countries and uh, had uh, a bit of a sort of mixed mixed background. My mother is Colombian, but of sort of French, Spanish blood originally. And uh, my father was Scottish. So Through his job, we sort of had the chance to live in a fair few countries, um, which I think sort of shaped my love of meeting people and, uh, you know, having varied experiences and sort of trying to sort of unpack um, and understand, you know, what what people respond to in different cultures, I suppose. So that was the beginning of a kind of love of comms, if you like. (laughs) Um, and I've carried on um, traveling around. I, I, I was living in London for about 15 years, uh, where I had the majority of my corporate career. And then a couple of years ago, I moved from London to Luxembourg with my Dutch husband. So that's now making it my seventh country <laughs> where I've been uh, where I've been living. So, um, and and it's really great being in Luxembourg because actually it's a sort of you know the seat of. Um, many different countries around it. Um, Everyone speaks an average of about at least four languages and it's a hyper international community. So it's been very interesting uh, doing this kind of work here as well.
0: In a sense, it's the the heart of Europe, isn't it? Because it's like so many people come from different parts of, of Europe and of the world. So you're having this potential culture clash as well which must affect work environments and, and businesses having to deal with lots of different kinds of not just personalities, but also uh, cultures.
1: Absolutely, and I think the cultural piece is huge because we're not just you know looking at the, the gray area between employee and business needs, but you know, you're also looking at the way in which employees, um, you know, like to work. You know, whether they want to be in the office, whether they respond better to be, you know, to having more flexibility. You know, I think in Anglo-centric cultures, you know, we tend to be more used to having flexibility, whereas I think perhaps in sort of you know French businesses, um, you know, there's bit more of a preference for being office-based. So, of course, the pandemic has just thrown out um, all of the pre-existing um, you know, understandings or interpretations of the rules, and now we're having to kind of go back and, uh, and rewrite everything from scratch. Um, so, it, it's been really interesting seeing this you know happening um, in front of us um, over the last year.
0: Absolutely. But uh, we'll, get, we'll talk a little bit more about what the pandemic has done for, for, for working cultures and for working conditions and how it's changed that. But if we go, go back to the beginning in terms of what you do now, um, you have a background in PR. Tell us more about how you kind of ended up uh, doing what you're doing now to change this.
1: Absolutely. So, well, I actually started out my career in branding, advertising, you know, media planning and buying. I worked in startups and in house, and then It was actually during the last crisis um, in 2008 that I decided that I would go and move into the world of financial communications, which seemed really interesting, because as you remember at that time, everything was imploding, you know, stock markets were going crazy. And, uh, and, you know, back then everyone was very worried about their reputation management. Um, So I ended up a little bit by accident um, working for a city PR firm and that was kind of the beginning of me working um, across financial and corporate comms which was really fascinating. You know, you had exposure to working for, you know, FTSE 100s, um, IBEX 35s, governments, agencies. And I think it was sort of during that time that I always sort of was quite embedded in, if you like, employee relations, both, you know, from the perspective of my clients, but also, you know, internally within the agencies where I worked. You know, I always liked to be a sort of advocate for um, good, you know, good working relationships, team dynamics, uh, mentoring juniors. Um, and, uh, you know, I... it. I felt that culture was something that always influenced why I would join a company or not as an employee. And then, you know, you you see the good, the bad and the ugly and everything in between. So, you know, in some situations you end up mediating internally and externally, building bridges and, and learning from a very wide range of leadership styles while trying to find your own authentic way of being a leader. And I think sometimes as a young woman in the industry, that's something that's that's quite difficult because, you know, there's, there's all sorts of examples And sometimes the examples of of female leadership tend to be quite alpha driven um so that was i would say that was the sort of the beginning of the kind of fascination with uh work culture and then later on i decided to to train as a as a mediator i found it fascinating you know this idea of being able to have difficult conversations, to have a sort of structure, a framework within that to separate, you know, the people from the problem, as they say, in the industry. Um, and uh, and that led, I suppose, the interest in mediation probably started much earlier on in life when I was living in Colombia, you know, and you see the sort of day-to-day kind of impact of, of conflict and, uh, and um, you know, just actually, you know, we used to meet people who were coming in to live in, in, in Bogota who were actually doing conflict management on a, you know, a, a wider scale, on a governmental scale, or guys from the SAS who would be coming in to, you know, negotiate hostage releases and all that type of stuff. So um, I think that's probably a little part of it inside me that sort of still thinks, you know, actually having that ability to 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 have good good conversations, good but difficult conversations, and not to shy away from them is is really important, and particularly in the cultural context.
0: This is so interesting, because you told me that, that your uh, Colombian mother and your Scottish father were just going to go out and, and visit your grandparents in Colombia <laughs> for a couple of weeks for holiday, and you ended up living there for 10 years, <laughs> um, for the better part of a decade. And and this is interesting, uh, because you were living there under the... Obviously, Colombia has always been, you know, in, in not the most... Quite a volatile place, is that fair to say? Quite a volatile country. Um, But you were living there during the sort of the height of the Narcos era as well. What was that like growing up in Colombia?
1: That's right. I mean, just to put it into context, I think the the first week or the day that we arrived, I think I was about six years old. And I don't know if you've watched Narcos, but I think there's an episode where the presidential candidate was shot. And I think we arrived pretty much around about that time. So everything was very... um, you know you felt like the environment was 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 not safe but as crazy as it sounds you know you do you do get used to living in a state of heightened alert because that's that's what you have to do i mean my dad used to work uh he had a um, banking job back in the days when you would get you know three or four year postings uh, so we'd just completed our posting in cairo and uh, i think he was offered another gig in 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 yemen which he politely declined and that led to a sort of temporary hiatus before we ended up in Colombia by accident, as you say. You know, got a call which said, you know, hey, would you come out here and look after us for a little bit? And we thought it was going to be a, a two-week holiday, and that transpired to become the better part of a decade. Um, but uh, and in fact, we didn't really assume that it was going to be that long. So my mum homeschooled me during that period of time because we just didn't know whether it would be a year or two, etc. So life is indeed what happens when you're making other plans, as I think John Lenton said.
0: Indeed it is. And I think it's also really interesting, as we're sort of um, musing over this, is, is is the the effect that that kind of upbringing that you had can actually have on your career. So it's fundamentally becomes an intrinsic part of you, um, having lived in a culture like that, where negotiations are necessary to keep the peace. I mean, you know, Colombia is not the only place I can think of places closer to home uh, that have that kind of history as well. So it becomes a part part of who you are, really.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And And I think also, you know, living in Colombia at that time, I mean, one of the beautiful things about the Colombian people is their spirit. You know, no matter how bad things get, you can't get them down. (laughs) <laughs> to a certain extent, you know, um, there was a real sort of joy and liveliness and, in, 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 you know, in during that time, even though it was a very dark time politically. And um, I would say that I kind of came out of that fe- feeling that, you know, life's too short not to be able to have these kind of really great human connections. Um, and you should be able to foster those in the workplace as well. You know, it's not just about you know, the people around you and your friendships, etc. But you know, you can you can create the vibe that you want.
0: That's not a bad lesson to have in life, is it? So um, when we talk about work environments, obviously, they can be uh, positive and, and nurturing, they can be all the way to negative and toxic. What do you think it is that causes this to come about? And do you think in general, that leaders within workplaces understand the impact of of culture in the workplace and what are those impacts? There's a lot to unpick in that question, but um...
1: yeah, there's a few things that come to mind. I mean, I think firstly, just to answer the question about whether leaders understand it. I I think that sadly, not all leaders understand the impact of culture in the workplace. It it can be overlooked and i think of course we'll get into the pandemic but you know that has exacerbated that further i think it was simon sinek who said that trust is like lubrication you know it reduces friction and creates conditions that are much more conducive to performance and i think trust issues have really been at the forefront of a lot of this you know the companies that have trusted their employees to kind of go away and get on with it and you know be adults have I think, fared better than the ones that haven't. And we can come into some specific examples around that. Um, But I think right now what we're looking at is those difficult conversations, some of them cultural, around what trust and presenteeism look like. And we are rebuilding new norms of, of social health around that. So, like, for instance, something as simple as gratitude has been overlooked I think, you know, know, we've seen Harvard University and Wharton research showing that, you know, receiving a simple thank you from a boss or a manager can bolster productivity by more than 50%. And that's outside of a pandemic. And yet people are less likely to show gratitude at work than anywhere else. People don't make it a daily habit. And some people rarely, rarely do express it at all.
0: Is it because we're expected to perform at work? So it's almost like a thank you, it's not not necessary. And the fact that we're not aware of of that those you know stunning statistics 50 percent you know productivity increase is quite astounding
1: i think so i mean i think people partly people forget so you know it's, if it's not if it's not in your culture to maybe say you know pleases and thank yous regularly and i think maybe in you know places like the uk maybe maybe that's done more i don't know culturally maybe that's, De- that's definitely i can
0: yeah i can say that as a as a Swedish Brit or a British Swede, whatever you like, is that definitely there's a huge difference there. Um, I would probably hear a thank you and a please on a daily basis in a decade in the UK than I did in comparison in Sweden or in the same time period, for sure. So th- that's the cultural difference as well, for
1: sure. Mm-hmm. But then equally, maybe if you're a Swedish employee, maybe then your expectations are aligned to that, you know, culturally, whereas if you were... You know, a Brit working in a Swedish firm, you might go, oh, well, this doesn't work for me because I'm used to getting something somewhere else. So, you know, I think it's sort of building those bridges a little bit and trying to understand, you know, map out who is in the team. You know, what is it that people respond to? How can we get the best working dynamics out of these situations? But thank you is a very simple, simple place to start. And I think how well people and organizations can work together are the best measure of its success, you know, and your ability to manage through struggles. Um, if if leaders can help to foster deep trust and commitment amongst the people that work for them, then that's a that's a great way of creating ambassadors um that will, you know, not only be ambassadors for your company while they're working for you, but after as well you know you're not going to be grappling with these sort of terrible glass door reviews which you know the sort of the curse of many many firms out there so what are the actual uh,
0: results that we can look at both positive and negative uh, when it comes to work culture and environments we're talking about results on an actual bottom line as well as employment retention rates productivity work fulfillment there's loads of aspects here isn't there
1: absolutely i mean you can you know you can bet that companies are spending a huge amount of money on their external communications whereas perhaps they're not worrying so much about their internal comms and how expensive it can be to get that wrong because if people leave you know that's that's knowledge that's resource that's time effort money that's been invested in them walking out the door um, so i would say if you have a sort of you know regular Um, a revolving door of people leaving an organisation, you know, that could be linked to the fact that people don't feel that psychologically safe within an organisation. So, you know, I would say that that shapes, you know, people's propensity to engage in certain learning behaviours, like information sharing, you know, being able to ask for help or to experiment. If, you know, if people don't feel safe or there's a fear or a perception that asking for help is going to lead to a negative reaction or bad feedback if mistakes are made, you know, then, then a workplace is at risk of becoming an apathy zone, which, uh, which, you know, I think, you know, people are physically in the workplace, but, you know, they're not fully engaged in their hearts and minds. And this is something that, you know, the psychologist uh, Amy Edmondson talks about a lot in her book, The Fearless Organization. And, and I think that this is really a big key to, to getting it right for the bottom line. Um, and we've seen companies that do have the resources to get this right, And we've seen examples of them time over time where, you know, leaders are allowed to foster a lack of empathy um, and, you know, atmospheres of ruthless and destructive competitions flourish in their place. So I'm, I'm thinking, for instance, you know, I remember Goldman Sachs back in the early 2000s, you know, they were manifesting, you know, unsustainable work practices back then. And they were supposed to be going through a whole culture shift um, in the 2000s. And I guess only a a few weeks ago, you may have seen there was a damning presentation by junior bankers, which was leaked to the world with the press outlining, you know, inhumane working conditions and calling for an 80 hour week cap as the current demands were totally untenable to their mental health. So, you know, in this case, leaders are being forced to review culture because it's having an external impact. You know, they're, they're worrying about their reputation it's also going to affect their ability to attack, attract future talent. You know, even though of course the pay packets are huge, you know, I think ultimately the gloss wears off because people realise, you know, what that actually means in practice. Um, but at the other end of the scale, you know, we've seen we've seen other companies, or even within financial services, um, you know, like Jane Fraser, who's the new CEO of of City. You know, she's put empathy as one of her kind of key. Um, strategic uh, pillars um, at the forefront of everything. And and that's leading to already a very different atmosphere there as part of the bank's turnaround. So
0: that's what we're talking about, a very, you know, this is the financial world, which is exactly, as you say, you know, where you work hard and you make a lot of money. It's also quite male-driven in general, I would say. The absolute majority of heads of large city banks are men. Uh, Jane Fraser is one of the... um, one of the exceptions empathy i would say is really something that is connected to uh, femininity right Mm -hmm. mothering empathy understanding you know caring all of those very female things and i think it's so interesting that she's bringing this to the table and that can probably bring about a lot more change (laughs) than any any other kind of value words on a on a wall can do so um I was given the advice once that you should not only when you go for a job interview it's not just about you being interviewed to see if you're a fit for the role even though that's often how it's kind of set up it's also about you getting a feel for the manager
1: mm-hmm
0: and whether that is somebody that you feel that you can work with. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm sensing now that we should also get a feel for the work environment and the culture in businesses that we mm-hmm. are wanting to work with. How can, uh, how can we do that? How can we get a feel for uh, whether a business um, is led by somebody like Jane who's pushing the envelope or whether it can potentially be an environment which we choose, choose not to be in?
1: I mean, that's a great question. I mean, I would say that, you know, when I was an employee, you know, if you're looking to join a company, I mean, clearly looking at the top, you know, is there a Jane in charge? You know, what kind of communications are being filtered around that person? And then, you know, if you can to try and really socialize it and get some intel from the people who have who have worked there or. Um, you know, still work there, you know, try and get some Zoom coffees or something and, and you know, just kind of get a sense for whether this is the right thing for you. Because I think, yeah, the due diligence before joining is so important. And it's much better that you take longer to decide and that it is the right fit that you end up with a good manager. And, and of course, you know, you can't get it right all the time. And maybe there are some lessons to be learned by working with someone who might not necessarily be a, a natural fit from the start. But There might be some skills there that you can, um, you know, learn from and benefit from and grow from without it being a situational conflict or, you know, something difficult. So uh, I think, you know, we can protect ourselves to an extent, but I often find that if there's a certain personality type that is a trigger, you know, you will meet them in other workplaces. It's not just a case of you know i'm going to leave this one and then i'll never have to deal or work with this kind of person ever again you know inevitably they do crop up that's just the nature of the nature of life isn't it so um yeah unless you start your
0: own business and choose not to work
1: exactly yeah and i and i think this has been exactly the case now you know we're seeing this huge boom in you know freelancers or people you know going it alone and really setting the cultures that they that they want and that's you know, that's fantastic. I think sometimes where the wheels come off later on is when they seek to grow and bring people on as well, or they grow too fast. That's when the wheels perhaps come off a bit and you need to sort of really uh, crystallize, you know, what kind of culture you have and how you want it to to work going forward with new people coming into the firm, because you have to reshape and build things together to a certain extent. Um, It can't just be one one person's um, vision forever necessarily.
0: I'm guessing also when you have a startup and you have huge investment costs in launching your product or service that um, setting the values for your culture may not be on the top of the, the list of investments that you're willing to do with limited funds.
1: Yeah, or alternatively, you can be very clear about what culture you want, because it's sometimes it's a rejection of Everything that's been before, you know, if you've had a toxic uh, work culture experience, you'll be incredibly clear about your values. You know, I mean, I'm sure you are, you know, Jess, in the work that you're doing now setting up, you know, I know we talked previously about you having worked in a a toxic culture. and, And I think that helps you decide how you want to do business going forward and how you treat people. So I think it's only when you're bringing other people on that that can sometimes be more complicated because it has to now live outside of your head. You know, if you're if you're wanting to to build um, something that everyone is a part of and will represent, um, then we're looking at a perhaps something that has to evolve from there.
0: So what you're saying is it's about the communication and the clarity in which you communicate. Yeah, and then you have then you have to live up to those values as well they can't just be pretty prints on a on a wall
1: yes but then i think that comes back to the you know if you're creating an environment where you know again we go back to psychological safety we go back to it being okay to to fail or you know you you are you are trying to do everything as best as possible and to be clear about it but where we are inconsistent that's also a lesson and a, and a growth point you know I think it's okay to you know we're not all superheroes it's okay to 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 fail and to sort of say you know hey I stick my hand up I didn't you know I didn't think about this or you know no leader is holier than that that's why I think you know leadership is more of an action than a title in many instances right absolutely
0: in my case I was very clear on that the environment that I was in was toxic that it was male-driven, that it was traditional, and it was definitely the uh, antithesis of human-centric. That was not in any way, shape, or form, doubt. But I know people who are in an environment where they're questioning that, you know, is this, am I in a toxic environment, or is it just me, or is it just my manager, or is it just, you know, these things around, rather than, "How how can you know?
1: Yeah, well, it's it's so interesting. I often think, um, you know, toxic cultures, um, you know, a little, it's a little bit like, or culture in general is a bit like live yogurt, isn't it? It thrives in the right environment and it dies in the wrong one. You know, I think if, if, if firstly, you know, for people who are in that environment... It's important to know, you know, you're, you're not alone. I don't know if you felt that you were on your own often. You know, you don't, you're kind of alone with your own thoughts. You're trying to work out whether the behaviors are toxic or not. You're sort of questioning yourself, second guessing. Um, you know, that's why I think it's important to document what's happening to you and try and pull together as much evidence as possible to see whether it's worth the fight or whether the constraints that you're facing are not worth it. You know, and I think it's important to then seek the support of someone that you trust outside of the organisation that can help to frame the perspective, and this is something that uh, Susan David, the psychologist, talks about really nicely. She says, you know, look, it's custom while it's customary to accept certain constraints in exchange for a paycheck, you know, employment is not something where you should sacrifice your entire self. You know, um, if you have the ability to to have some sort of emotional agility you know, that will help to to shape your professional life rather than having it shape you. You know, it doesn't own you. So I think the idea is to get back into the driving seat of your own life and to sort of say, look, is it worth it? Are the things that I'm looking at here um, surmountable? You know, and then looking at what the approach is. So again, communication to self, I think is really important because we just get very blurry, don't we? When we're in that situation.
0: We do get very blurry. And I think that that is really good advice uh, to also make notes and take down what is actually happening to you because you will find that it's very difficult afterwards to recollect in the right order and um try to understand what had happened without those notes so that is advice that is is very very good and advice that i have received as well and and unfortunately <laughs> a lot of people in my life around me have been in similar circumstances um where they've been marginalized and quietened or been in a toxic environment or things have been happening to them. So that's really, really good advice. Um, And I think at the end of the day, if it feels toxic to you, then it probably is. Because at the end of the day, it's you that it's about.
1: Exactly, exactly. And I think there's a second point there as well. You know, it's about understanding, you know, what stories are we telling ourselves or what do we think other people might be telling themselves about the context and the environment that toxic environment. So what I mean is, you know, how do we perceive our work reality? Um, you know, I'll give you an example, you know, once in a workplace, I felt that I couldn't approach a senior colleague who was a, a key decision maker to the success of a project. And I felt like I was being shut out and waved away with the kind of, you know, I'm too busy, you know, not now, let's not talk about it now. And then I'm thinking, but, you know, I'm a project manager, you know, I need to be able to understand when we can have this conversation, you know, if it's not now, then when. Um, so, I think when you're being kind of dismissed like that, it's easy to then take it personally and to enter into sort of self-protection mode. And as someone who prefers a collaborative approach, you know, that's, that's quite hard to, to kind of stick doggedly and to sort of go back to the person and say, you know, I need this from you, blah, blah, blah. So what I'm saying is that, you know, I actually realized that that person was being driven by their own fear of failure. And my internal dialogue was getting stuck around the kind of the fractured communication. You know, it's only in my mind, it's only making the relationship more challenging and more tentative. So, you know, our our brains really enjoy telling us difficult stories and seeing the threats instead of the opportunities. And they try and fill in the gaps with the missing pieces, which we have self-determined. So I think that's a really key part. And the documenting will help us to see, you know, are we perceiving our our realities at work in, in a specific way, you know, can we identify what the behavioral organizational patterns are to help us to understand what the roadmap is to navigating conflict? You know, what's the truth? What's the filter? If an inter- interaction feels unsatisfactory or unproduction, unproductive, sorry, it can easily develop into that, you know, problem we avoid talking about. And there's a guy called Gervais Bush who talks about this being like interpersonal mush, you know, instead of interpersonal clarity. And those patterns in the workplace, I think, really determine the outcomes and the, you know, the future relationship potential that we have with our colleagues and our bosses.
0: I was in a situation once where a mediator was brought in, and um, she had a conversation with me. She had a conversation with the other party separately, and then we, ha- we were supposed to have a conversation together. And in the conversation that she had with me separately, she ended up turning around after I had told her my story, which is obviously from my perspective, uh, that's to be expected. And she looked at me and she said, you know, you probably should leave, right? (laughs) And, you know, I mean, sometimes that is the case, right? Sometimes that is the case that we take the things that we have learned and Mm. say, okay, that is now time to cut our losses, Interhuman human relationships and communication mm-hmm. is not easy.
1: No, it's not. And, and and I wonder whether, I mean, did you at that time feel that the company had sold its culture to you as it was? Or do you think that you would have maybe not applied to that if you'd really understood how the culture was?
0: I felt that they had sold a culture that didn't exist in real life. I felt that, that, that it was just um, hollow words. And I felt that even the most senior management did not, live up to that um to those values and I don't I couldn't see that they were serving anybody else but themselves so if those weren't the values that they were living up to then what was it that they were kind of like what were their values Mm -hmm. um and I couldn't see that their values were anything else but furthering their Mm. own careers Mm. and for me it ended up being a situation where it's like well i can't, i couldn't even do my job like it wasn't even possible to do my job and when i did my job it just didn't it just didn't feel good um, cuz there was yeah it was it was a bad situation <laughs> it was a bad situation but i think we can all you know relate to that because we've all i mean the figures of people um women who are unhappy in the workplace there was a survey done not too long ago that in Sweden, out of a, you know, nine million population, uh, five million working population, one and a half million people said that they were not happy with the job situation and they want to leave. To me, that's incredibly sad. That is a huge societal failure in that sense, because we do spend a lot of time in the workplace. Um, and it, it just saddens me, really, that people feel that way. Um, mm hmm and they don't have to.
1: It's interesting that actually, you know, uh, there was this Gallup Global Workforce uh, report from 2017, and this was, you know, obviously three years ago, pre-pandemic. And, you know, even then people were actively disengaged. I mean, the stats for Western Europe um, were, were, were quite significant. And, and if we think about the words actively disengaged, what they mean is people who are actively sabotaging their work, creating a negative work environment, which is actually even worse than looking to leave a company. Um, so I'm, I'm interested. There'll be a new report this year. Um, what you know, what has shifted, if if anything at all during COVID? See if it's got better or worse. I, I would only assume it's got worse. But
0: mm, it's interesting. What what other? Let's talk about the post-pandemic world. Not that we're there yet. Um, I mean, but we're in post-something. Um, what changes do you see in in uh, work environments in the prerequisites for work that we have in the world that we live in now, as opposed to two years ago?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think for for companies to be able to attract, you know, high quality employees, I think they're going to have to be really focusing on offering flexibility. I mean, we're seeing some extremes at the moment, some extreme reactions in the played out in the media in terms of what people think will be the future of work. Um, But I think what is clear is, you know, regardless of whether people would like to be back in the office or you know, if they feel that working remotely suits them better, the biggest thing is, is flexibility. You know, everyone's needs will be different, and you know, of course not every organisation can necessarily support those needs, but then I think it comes back to communication and companies having a responsibility to be clear about what those rules will be so that people can choose whether it will still be for them or not in that situation. So, and I think leaders just generally need to be able to be supportive and accessible. Um, you know, the nature of, of work has, of course, become mostly online. It's transactional, it's task-based. Um, so I think that's why we come back to, you know, a human-centric approach is, is really, you know, it's not a nice-to-have, it's a necessity for employees, for their work outcomes, for the bottom line. Um, and that's why we're looking at, you know, Solutions that have been proposed previously for you know supporting employee well being, yeah, you know, like the free work yoga class or you know, whatever. I mean, maybe free yoga class is not really going to help you, but if you were given the gift of time, no questions asked, that might give you some headspace to be able to come back and crack on with some amazing work that afternoon. So We're seeing a bit of experimentation out there in terms of, you know, I know that some countries have experimented with the four-day work week or, you know, looking, some companies are looking at no Zoom Fridays or, you know, um, perhaps a monthly all-company well-being day off or, you know, something like that. Um, But the fact is, you know, we're still seeing very high-profile companies like, know i mentioned goldman before but you know the ceo came out a few weeks back saying that working from home would be an aberration that must be stopped as soon as possible so and i maybe there's a sector consideration there you know client confidentiality training in person you know mentoring etc you know i understand that there's some difficult things to substitute um but look the future's already here and employees will certainly be looking for more flexibility so that coming back to jane fraser you know with her having announced her plan for Zoom Free Fridays, you know, in a memo sent to her employees, I think it was, you know, just a few, uh, a few weeks after her um, starting, uh, st- starting the role of CEO, you know, she was really already recognizing that workers have spent an inordinate amount of time staring at video calls. And, you know, to be actively encouraging your employees to take a step back from Zoom and other video conferencing platforms for at least a day a week is already saying the message that you know we don't need to blur the lines between home and work and you know have this kind of relentless game of tennis in play you know um because that's just taking a toll on our well-being so the fact is there's no one-size-fits-all approach to well-being or motivation but that's why the cultural point becomes even more important during this time because you just want to make sure that work as a concept is, is you know is a place worth being if you're remote or in the office or you have a blended approach? Um, and that's something that uh, you know, has been written about recently. There was a brilliant demos report called the Nowhere Office, which came out about a month ago and, and, and it does look at that at that piece about you know we're, we're actively having to experiment and diversify our norms to think about how the next generation of workplaces can do better. And a lot of that will boil down to leadership and management culture. Embracing a complete end to presenteeism and redrawing what success really looks like because we can't go by the old world book anymore. Post pandemic life is different.
0: Yeah, definitely. It's definitely different. And leadership in a post pandemic world is also different because how do you, how do you, because this is where kind of the old world pre-pandemic and and the new kind of collide is that how do you as a leader and a manager lead and manage people at a distance? What kind of demands will that have on leadership in the future?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. And I think, you know, coming back to the sort of empathic leadership um, examples that we've been seeing, you know, of course, Jane Fraser, but On a political scale, I think we've seen, you know, um, reports that the female leaders in different countries, like, you know, Jacinda Ardern, um, performing really well, right? You know, she led with empathy in a crisis, and she's done that in a way that tempts people to fend for themselves. So we're taking that leadership back into people's lives. And her messages, I think, are clear, they're consistent, they're somehow they're you know, they're sobering in that she's giving you the full truth. But at the same time, you feel kind of soothed because you're being told the truth. Um, and, you know, her approach isn't just working with people on an emotional level. I mean, it's also working on a, on a, on a logistical um, level, too. I mean, they've I think they've come in and out of um, lockdown a couple of times. But, you know, on the whole, the country is in pretty good shape compared to others. Uh, you know, and getting you get that sense as well. that You know, you're not being preached at. You're having someone. Um, uh, upon high who's standing with you. Um, and I think that really breeds confidence um, and, and, and empathy has everything to do with that.
0: That is, you know, she's not the only one. Uh, we have very young leaders or very young in their 30s in Finland, female leaders who are, are doing similar things, leading in a sort of feminine way, if you will, uh, leading with empathy. And perhaps that's exactly what's what's needed in and a situation uh, as the one we have been in for a long time now. But I think there's no doubt in anyone's mind, or there should not be, more female leaders in the world. And um, how do you see women leading differently? You spend a lot of time with leaders, working with leadership coaching. And, you know, what What do we bring to the table in terms of, of leaders and leadership? And why do we need more female leaders?
1: I think women leaders are extremely brave I think they are intuitive they are excellent communicators Um, and I think the empathy point links to the fact that you know they're just willing to show up and be fully human um, to look at their flaws you know to turn those things into into strengths Um, and I think it is that ability to to self-analyze and self-evaluate that makes them so much more powerful and 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 compelling because people then, you know, see that and it makes them accessible. So for me it's that sort of kind of, you know, nurturing. I mean, of course, you know, that can be a little bit stereotypical that people say, oh, you know, well, women are more nurturing, or you know, whatever actually, I think sometimes they can be steelier than they're given credit for. Um, but it is that sort of brave, clear communication and that capacity for self-analysis that I think makes them very strong, and I've seen that in my work with a lot of, um, you know, CEOs or you know young leaders who are looking to, to you know, become the next um, the next CEOs of their organisations um, really demonstrate those 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 gifts.
0: Mm, that's interesting. Um, Change can be both slow and painful and and fast. The pandemic has done more for digitalization than any government uh, in the world has done. And that has changed quite fast, but still we're in... A same kind of working week that we, ha- we have had since the Industrial Revolution as 250 years ago. We are living in a world designed by men for men. There is no doubt about that. That shows in research and data. Why is it so hard for us to change these things? Why is this such a slow work in progress?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, you're right, it is very slow. I mean, a 30-hour work week was popular in the early 20th century. And then I think support for that sort of dropped off, um, you know, as late as the the Great Depression. (laughs) And it's only just now that companies are experimenting with this idea again. It's been a while. It has been a while. And I think, I guess, you know, societal and cultural norms, peer pressure, you know, they've all held this back. And we're coming back to the sort of, you know, corporate fears around, you know, trust transparency, productivity, you know, can we really take this risk and make this shift? Um, But we've all been forced to make a very dramatic shift in the last year. And people have shown that they can do it. They're up to it. Right. So I think we'll be given rise to greater freedom to experiment with change. I think we have to because it's the only way to reshape things. Um, And and this point about, you know, realizing how important the gift of time is, um, is 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 leading people to say, you know, that the traditional nine to five, ironically feels like an anachronism, you know, we're reframing what the concept of time looks like. But also, you know, how do we how do we look at success again? So um, we are seeing trials everywhere. I mean, earlier this year, the Spanish government agreed to begin a small nationwide trial of a four day work week. And I think they're meeting, um, or they've, already met in late march to hammer out the details so it will be interesting to see whether the early results um, are satisfactory to them because it's a significant move right i mean spain has traditionally grappled with very low productivity in europe and it has a very patriarchal approach to work culture relative to other european countries you know for instance sweden or the uk Um, and uh, then we've seen you know new zealand uh, you know unilever tested out a four-day working week there as well um, up until I think it's uh, December 21, where they're going to be giving staff a chance to slash their hours by 20% without hurting their pay. And, you know, even their MD has said, you know, this is about measuring performance on output, not time. It's not about time. So, yeah, coming coming up against the old works, ways of working are, uh, you know, it's all a bit up- outdated, sorry. Um, And in Denmark, I believe there was a Danish town as well that was experimenting with flexible working from Monday to Thursday. And it's an experiment that's going to run until 2022. It's been allocating, you know, two of the 37 hours per week required by a national trade union agreement to self-directed professional development. But otherwise, it's going to retain the same total workload. So this is all about emphasizing greater efficiency, um, you know, encouraging shorter, shorter meetings um and having a longer weekend which is what you know people need 3 days off to recharge because we're all digital now you know it's a different way of of delivering work and i guess if you have to work a little bit more on 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 those 4 days you know you're probably more likely to do it because you know you're going to get a proper break of 3 days so it would be interesting to see the results from some of these trials coming coming forward but i think definitely we're seeing things are gathering pace and no doubt, as a result of the great social experiment that the pandemic has brought about. Absolutely.
0: And I've seen in the experiments that have been conducted in Sweden as well, one of the prerequisites of those has been no use of social media in the workplace. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you get three days off, or you get your longer evenings, you can do your social media a bit then, but don't do Facebook when you're supposed to be working, because you're working, you know, 30 hours instead of 40. That's also a part of changing the whole structure of it. But... It, it sounds to me when I'm listening to you speak is that it requires a great amount of bravery from our leaders to to, to get change. You're going to have to go out on a limb and do something slightly differently. And I think that that's just like, like you say, that's where the pandemic has pushed us along mm. on this journey of change. So it is happening, but impatient as I am I'd like to see it happening (laughs) quickly we we
1: all are yeah
0: (laughs) so let's talk about work cultures though if you realize that you cannot change one yourself and you're leaving your job but the culture is still there if you're a leader in a culture that you feel is not working but it's kind of in the walls it's just one of those things it permeates the whole organization but you want to change it I mean I'm thinking that's That's quite tough to do. What kind of advice do you have for leaders who want to change if they're CEOs or work culture that they may not necessarily even be responsible for building?
1: Yeah, I think at an individual level, you know, it is possible to promote transparency and to be a good communicator. Um, So, you know, being transparent about what you're doing and why. Again, you know, even if the organization is maybe not manifesting a strong level of psychological safety, you know, just by the fact that you are being curious or having an inquiring ma- mindset within the team, um, you know, by replacing, you know, blame and judgment with curiosity, I suppose you're then helping attitudes to shift towards negotiating for connection or, you know, collaborating or, you know, fostering mutual strengths. So, I mean, I think those are things that we can do on an individual level of course you know if you see that your leaders are you know immutable and and nothing will change then you know I think it ultimately becomes about your own sanity and just making sure that you're not sacrificing your your mental health in the process but but I suppose there's a pathway for how much can I do within my team how much can I empower myself and then you know if the result of you know documenting Uh, my experiences are showing that there's no real shift happening in a period of you know I don't know three months six months you know whatever the milestones you feel you can withstand Um, then you know at that point it's really up to you to to make the decision to leave but with a peaceful a peaceful mind that you've done everything and said everything that you wish you had at that time and
0: if I'm the leader of an organization whose values I was not responsible for creating but it's sort of is permeating the organization that I lead what can I do to change is it about leading with by example changing leadership styles management culture does it start at the top
1: I I think it does I mean I think um you know sure leading by example it you know is fantastic and if I think about you know servant leaders I often think that they are they've done very well during this time, you know, someone who is willing to actually say, I don't have all the answers, but I'm willing to try and get the data and work with you to come up with a solution. So someone who is approachable, who will, um, you know, have an open door policy, or will make the effort to pick up the phone and call an employee and say, you know, hey, how's it going? You know, really reaching out and just to sort of get that intel that might otherwise be very difficult to get because we're not in the office. You know, and also sometimes people are not so willing to share because they're afraid that that will somehow be reflected in their performance review or, um, you know, it's going to come back and haunt them in some other way. So I think that accessibility is is really key and people will perform better if they feel that their, you know, their CEO or their leader is, you know, is, is in their corner Um, are willing to make some sacrifices as well. I mean, there was that guy um, in the U.S., I'm trying to remember his name, but um, I think he was famous for cutting his salary and he put everyone on a $75,000 per year salary because he had worked out somehow that that was the sort of the optimal salary for well-being. And he felt that if he could cut his salary and enable other people to have a great standard of living, that was going to do wonders for productivity and for... Um, you know, well-being in the company, um, and it did. I mean, he, you know, he felt he had no need for paying himself, you know, hu- huge amounts of money. Um, but um, the satisfaction that he got from really empowering everyone around him meant that I think they didn't have any sick days. You know, you didn't have any of the sort of typical, you know, dips in productivity because people are exhausted and you know running ragged and worrying and looking over their shoulders. So that was sort of really role modeling, I think servant leadership. um, And that can be done very successfully. And I think now the humans, you know, the humans are coming. We need human leaders at the top of businesses um, if we're going to make them fit for the future.
0: Oh, that is so true. I love that. That's a nice end to it. But before we, before I leave you, um, I would uh, like to ask you a question I ask all of my podcast guests, and that is to please share a story of failure and learning. Because I think that we often miscalculate that failing is actually learning. And in our pursuit of of flawlessness, we forget this fact. So I really want to embed that that failing is important to move forward. So is there a failure in your life that you would like to share with us and, and what you learned from it?
1: I love that. I mean, this sort of really fits into. I love that Elizabeth Day podcast uh, about, about failure. Um, her whole podcast and I've, and I've, is about her failure. Whole, her whole <laughs> podcast, exactly. No, I I've thought about this, and um, I think sometimes in well in my career, I've definitely could think of instances where I have failed to ask searing questions when I should have. You know, situations where you are faced with someone who's Perhaps quite a kind of maybe an aggressive leader. And you know, you take a bit of a back seat because of the kind of peacekeeping, you know, diplomatic approach is maybe the best one. You know, so you end up sort of smoothing over or avoiding situations of conflict instead of kind of really probing and asking difficult questions. So I think I realize, you know, that there is, you know, while there is, of course, huge power in being an active or a reflective in- listener. You know, you also need to play it forward and imagine how you would feel if you didn't say what you wanted to say. Um, and I think that's kind of what took me to to study mediation. You know, I think I realized that I would benefit from those tools that would help me to reframe reframe conflict in a different way. You know, to set, separate emotions from facts, and to then really come back to like, okay, well, what is it? You know, what what is the data that we have here? What's the data that's missing? And think about it in those terms rather than oh, this person is speaking in this manner or, you know, I hate conflict or, you know, whatever it is. So I think that that's really, um, you know, helped me to embrace my diplomatic side, but given me a bit more of a a framework to, 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 you know, really be in the driver's seat and not sort of, you know, dominated by the situation itself.
0: I think that this sort of self-awareness also comes with age, thank goodness. Mm. That when you um, gain experience in work life, because why should you go into work life and know everything, of course you don't. So as you gain experience throughout the years, then of course you will have more of the chutzpah, if you will, to draw the line Mm. or say no, or call attention to things that need to be called attention to but I can so relate to what you're saying because when I reflect back I can see situations where I wish I had drawn the line in the sand and I didn't Mm. because I was afraid or uh, I was worried or I it's generally some 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 connection with fear on my part yeah I wasn't doing the right thing or you know but it comes with age thank goodness
1: Exactly, and it's about having that clarity and gaining perspective over, you know, what's my stuff and what's your stuff, you know, in the situation. Exactly. And being really clear that you don't need to conflate the two and that it's okay to not take on other people's stuff.
0: Yeah, it's if very hard. Stick
1: with your values, very hard.
0: It's very hard to work with people who wanna put all the stuff on you, <laughs> even their <Yeah>. own. <laughs> they just wanna do that. Um, and yeah, it's hard to hold up that mirror to them. And, you know, Perspective is a beautiful gift, isn't it? It is, in <laughs> hindsight. <laughs> With that, um, I want to say a heartfelt thank you for the time we spent together here today. I think it's so interesting. And I think that, you know, the data shows that a lot of people want to make changes um, in their careers, in their workplaces, and they're, a lot of them are not happy. So this is a really important thing for our you know, sort of common sanity and we do need leaders who have the bravery to implement these changes in our workplaces as well so the only place to go is is up right absolutely thank you so
1: much just for providing a platform for this this type of conversation as well so tell us where can we find you yes absolutely well you can find me at work culture i'm normally pretty active on uh, linkedin uh, instagram and uh, and of course you can check out the website which is www.workculturati.com really hope you've enjoyed this episode
0: you've been listening to unprecedented women with me Jess Audsley. if you've been inspired by this conversation I would love to hear from you please subscribe to this podcast and give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word believe it or not it really does help keep in touch on Instagram my favorite platform and let me know your thoughts you can find me at rocksocial underscore Thank you so much for listening and see you next time for more chats with unprecedented women.